Joshua 24. Good morning. We are going to read the entire chapter, even though we will not get through the entire the entire chapter today. Joshua chapter 24. And Joshua gathered all the tribes of Israel to Shechem and called for the elders of Israel and for their heads and for their judges and for their officers. And they presented themselves before God. And Joshua said unto all the people, Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, Your fathers dwelt on the other side of the flood in old time, even Terah, the father of Abraham, and the father of Nacre, and they served other gods. And I took your father Abraham from the other side of the flood and led him throughout all the land of Canaan and multiplied his seed and gave him Isaac. And I gave unto Isaac Jacob and Esau, and I gave unto Esau Mount Seir to possess it. But Jacob and his children went down into Egypt. And I sent Moses also and Aaron, and I plagued Egypt according to that which I did among them, and afterward I brought you out. And I brought your fathers out of Egypt, and you came unto the sea, and the Egyptians pursued after your fathers with chariots and horsemen unto the Red Sea. And when they cried unto the Lord, he put darkness between you and the Egyptians and brought the sea upon them and covered them. And your eyes have seen what I have done in Egypt. And ye dwelt in the wilderness a long season. And I brought you into the land of the Amorites, which dwelt on the other side Jordan, and they fought with you. And I gave them into your hand that you might possess their land, and I destroyed them from before you. Then Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab, arose and warred against Israel, and sent and called Balaam, the son of Beor, to curse you. But I would not hearken unto Balaam, therefore he blessed you still, so I delivered you out of his hand. And you went over Jordan and came unto Jericho, and the men of Jericho fought against you, the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Canaanites, and the Hittites and the Girgashites and the Hivites and the Jebusites, and I delivered them into your hand. And I sent the hornet before you, which drove them out from before you, even the two kings of the Amorites, but not with thy sword nor with thy bow. And I have given you a land for which ye did not labor, and cities which ye built not, and ye dwell in them. Of the vineyards and olive yards which ye planted not do ye eat. Now therefore fear the Lord, and serve him in sincerity and in truth, and put away the gods which your father served on the other side of the flood, and in Egypt, and serve ye the Lord." And if it seem evil unto you to serve the Lord, choose you this day whom you will serve, whether the gods which our fathers served that were on the other side of the flood, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land ye dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And the people answered and said, God forbid that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. For the Lord our God, he it is that brought us up and our fathers out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage in which did those great signs in our sight and preserved us in all the way wherein we went, and among all the people through whom we passed. And the Lord drove out from before us all the people, even the Amorites which dwelt in the land. Therefore we will also serve the Lord, for he is our God. And Joshua said unto the people, You cannot serve the Lord, for he is a holy God, he is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions nor your sins. If ye forsake the Lord and serve strange gods, then he will turn and do you hurt and consume you after that he hath done you good. And the people said, Joshua, they will serve the Lord. And Joshua said unto the people, Ye are witnesses against himself. He chosen you at the Lord to serve him. And they said, We are witnesses. Now we will see the strange gods which are from you and are the Lord of Israel. 
The people said unto Joshua, The Lord our God will we serve, and his voice will we obey. Joshua made a covenant with the people that day and set them a statute and an ordinance. And Joshua wrote these words in the book of the law of God and took a great stone and set it up there under an oak that was by the sanctuary of the Lord. And Joshua said unto all the people, Behold, this stone shall be a witness unto us, for it hath heard all the words of the Lord, which he spake unto us. It shall be therefore a witness unto you, lest ye deny your God. So Joshua let the people depart, every man unto his inheritance. And it came to pass after these things that Joshua the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died being a hundred and ten years old. And they buried him in the border of his inheritance in Timnasera, which is in Mount Ephraim on the north side of the hill of Gash. And Israel served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders that overlived Joshua and which had known all the works of the Lord that he had done for Israel. And the bones of Joseph, which the children of Israel brought up out of Egypt, buried they in Shechem, in a parcel of ground which Jacob bought of the sons of Hamer, the father of Shechem, for a hundred pieces of silver. And it became the inheritance of the children of Joseph. And Eleazar the son of Aaron died, and they buried him in a hill that pertained to Phinehas his son, which was given him in Mount Ephraim. And let's pray. Father, we thank you again, once again, for your word. We ask for wisdom. We ask for uh, insight, Lord, that we would love you more, that we would be more faithful to you, and that we would cherish all that you've done for us in giving us your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, chapter 24 is another gathering by Joshua of the people, another speech that he is about to give. Um, we had a speech, chapter 23 was another gathering and, and, a, and a farewell address by Joshua. Uh, some have wondered whether or not uh, Joshua possibly lived longer than he expected, as, as maybe this second farewell address is, wasn't really anticipated. You know, he wasn't possibly he wasn't certain that he was going to live as long as he did. But but nevertheless, he calls them together for a second address. Um, certainly wanting to we, we see here making most of all of the time that he has um, exhorting the people and encouraging them all the way up until the very end, all the way up until the the end of his life at age 110. This is the same group of people that he called together there in verse two of chapter 23. We're given the location of this particular address, which is in Shechem. There may be several reasons for the significance of that. Uh, first of all, again, as, as Joshua is very old, it's probably difficult for him to travel. Shechem was not very far from his hometown. Also, God appeared to Abraham there and established his covenant with Abraham. We have that recorded in Genesis 12, 6, and 7. And then also... This is also the place where Joshua renewed God's covenant with the people in Joshua 8, 30-35. Uh, you know, when they were uh, not that far into the center conquest, where they had uh, fought a few battles, Joshua called them together and, and read them the book of the law and renewed the covenant at that place. So this is the same location. And just as Moses calls them, that this is a renewal of the covenant. There, there really isn't any, any, any additional information. Uh, regarding God's promises in chapter 24 that we haven't seen earlier in Scripture, um, God many times renews His covenant, um, renewed it many times through the succeeding generation. He renewed it with the original covenant that He had that He had cut with Abraham. He renewed with Isaac. 
when my parents celebrated their 25th wedding anniversary, they had a, a ring of their vows. Um, nothing wrong with that. And so, you know, God chooses frequently to remind these people that he is going to continue to keep his promises. And so we have yet another renewal of the covenant. This chapter, actually the entire book and and basically the entire Bible, but this chapter again in particular is all about the faithfulness of God, the God's covenant. And there's no idea that we're going to go through a long, relatively long list of consequences, things that God has already done for them in in bringing those promises. And Josh was going to make mention of several of them. He recounts many of the great things that God has done for them and then will bring them to a point where he will be urging them to make their commitment to the Lord, to, to decide, to make a choice that they are going to serve him. In verse number two, and there at the end of verse number one, we see that they presented themselves before God. Joshua was the one that called them together, but... Um, they, you know, as they presented themselves before God, they recognized that Joshua was speaking for the Lord. This wasn't Joshua's covenant with them. This was the Lord's covenant with them. Verse 2 begins, or shortly into the verse, it says, Thus saith the Lord. And you want to be quite sure when you're speaking for the Lord. Um, many today claim to speak for the Lord. We can confidently speak for the Lord as long as we're speaking His Word. We certainly have no new revelation from the Lord outside of His Word, but we can be confident when we when we are speaking of His Word. I know whenever I'm speaking, whether I'm preaching a sermon or whether I'm teaching, I try to be very careful about what I have to say. I know you do not come to hear what my opinion is, and you shouldn't. You have every reason to doubt anything that I say in and of myself, but... You know, the balance that I want to achieve is that I, on the other hand, I want you to understand that, you know, I want all of us to understand that that the Bible is authoritative and that God's word, we can be confident in God's word. And so, you know, even though you have every reason to doubt anything that I say in and of myself, certainly we don't want to have any reason to doubt what the word of God says and what God has to say. So the people recognize that that's what's going on here, that Joshua is not speaking for Joshua. Joshua is speaking to them for the Lord. Here in verse number 2, and and actually in several verses in chapter 24, there's the mention here of the other side of the flood. That's just a poor translation. The the Hebrew word there is used in the Bible over 120 times, and and well over 100 of those times it's translated river. And that's what it means. It means the great Euphrates River in this case. And in Joshua chapter 1, verse 4, that same word is translated that way. And in other places throughout the book, it's translated that way. So, for whatever reason, there are, you know, and we'll see that when we get to verses 14 and 15, they have chosen to translate that word a little bit differently. But it doesn't, it doesn't mean a flood as we would think of a flood today. It means a river. And that's where Abraham was, that's where God had, had brought Abraham to the promised land from, was from on the other side of that river, the great river Euphrates. Joshua starts in reminding the people of their sinful ancestors, their idolatrous ancestors. He reminds them that God has called them out of that. And of course, the same is true of us. When God saves us, He calls us out of our sin, calls us to repent. In verse number 3, we see that God, it says God took Abraham. God took him. God prospered him. There's a, you know, one of the things that we should clearly recognize throughout chapter 24 is that this is all done by the grace of God. God did not pick Abraham because there was something special about Abraham. God did not look down and decide that Abraham was, was the, you know, the, the, 
was the, the best follower, even though he was a pagan and an idol worshiper. God didn't, that's not the way it happened at all. I mean, that, Abraham falls into the category there at the end of verse 2, and they served other gods. So it wasn't anything that Abraham did that made him deserving of God's grace being bestowed on him. And of course, we're, we recognize that that's, that's true of us. You know, we, we are saved by grace, Ephesians 2.8. We're not saved by anything that we do. We're not saved because of good works. When I was in college, I had a uh, particular computer class that I, that I really wanted to get an A in. And that particular class, the, the grading scale was 96 to 100 for an A and 90, 88 to 95 for a B. And when I took the final exam, I knew I was on the border of getting an A. And the, the instructor was, you know, a lot of times they were pretty gracious. They would grade your final exam right there on the spot if you were kind of willing to stand there and wait. And so I had gone up to the teacher and I had turned in my exam and he graded it and he had figured up my grade for the semester and I had a 95.3. And I thought, hmm, I don't know how that's going to work. And so I asked him about that and he said, he said, well, I generally follow the traditional rules of rounding. You know, if you have a 95.5 or above, you'll get an A, and otherwise you'll get a B. And I thought, hmm, that, you know. But I didn't say anything more about it. And uh, two weeks later, when I got my grade, he had given me an A. That is a illustration of human grace, but that's a pretty poor illustration of God's grace. God's grace would be if I didn't even have a paper to turn in and I got 100%. I mean, that's what we're deserving of. We deserve a zero. And that's, that's the picture here of God giving Abraham. Abraham didn't have anything to contribute. We don't have anything to contribute. Turn to Hebrews chapter 11. We'll look at a little bit more regarding Abraham. And I know anytime we start to talk about salvation by grace and God calling us to be faithful and committed to Him, I, we can easily, at least I certainly it sounds like I'm talking in circles, because anytime you start talking about election and, and if we will, you know, you, you, you just go back and forth and it sounds like you're talking in circles. And I understand John 6.44 says, No man can come to me except the Father which has sent me draw him. But the question is, there's certainly a question I have is, could Abraham have resisted that call? Abraham was called. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 8. It says, By faith Abraham, when he was called to go out into a place which he should after receive for inheritance, obeyed. There's that word. Obey. Now, if Abraham didn't have a choice, why, why, why are we told that? Why mention that? And, and you see that in several of these accounts in Hebrews chapter 11, that people exercise their faith. And again, I don't want to, I don't want to be talking in circles. I, I just hopefully emphasize the point that we're saved by grace, yet God calls us to exercise our faith. 
years ago as I was driving in my car, I was listening to family radio of the late false teacher Harold Camping, which I don't listen to anymore. I used to listen to it because I liked the music. If you're familiar with Harold Camping, he's the one that had purchased billboards all over the country a few years ago proclaiming the Lord was returning on May 21st, and then after he had was wrong, then he changed it to September, and, and this all after he had already predicted the Lord was returning in 1994 and some other occasions. And they were teaching on that particular radio program that we are, those of us who allow our children to sing, I have decided to follow Jesus, are, are, are wrong. That uh, nobody has decided to follow Jesus. It's all a work of grace. It's God's doing. Um, like I said, you know, you, you can weary yourself splitting theological hairs, arguing about, you know, predestination and election. I think that's taking it to the extreme, but nevertheless, that's the argument that they were making that, you know, these evil churches of ours that are teaching young people to sing, I have decided to follow Jesus, that's just, that's just unbiblical. Well, here in, in Hebrews 11, it says Abraham obeyed. He went out not knowing whither he went. Verse 9, by faith he sojourned in the land of promise as in a strange country dwelling in tabernacles with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. For he looked for a city which hath foundations, whose builder and maker is God. Through faith also Sarah herself received strength to conceive seed and was delivered of a child when she was past age because she judged him faithful who had promised. Sarah made a decision. She decided that God's, God was faithful. She judged him faithful. She decided that God keeps his word. Certainly it was God's doing, but yet she had a decision to make. She judged God to be faithful. Therefore sprang there even of one, and him as good as dead, so many as the stars of the sky in multitude, and as the sand which is by the seashore innumerable. These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off and were persuaded of them and embraced them and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. Notice they, pers- they were persuaded of them. They embraced them. They exercised their faith. Verse 14, For they that say such things declare plainly that they seek a country, and truly if they had been mindful of that country from whence they came out, they might have had opportunity to have returned. If Abraham had been focused on his old country, he may have chosen to go back to that old country. But in verse 16, But now they desire a better country that is a heavenly, wherefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he hath prepared for them a city. Abraham had his sights focused on what God wanted them focused on. He wasn't, he didn't choose to turn back and go back to the idolatrous nation that he had departed. By 17, by faith, Abraham, when he was tried, offered up Isaac. And he that had received the promises offered up his only begotten son, of whom it was said that in Isaac shall thy seed be called, accounting that God was able to raise him up even from the dead, from whence also he received him in a figure. That word accounting is is similar to the word there used of Sarah in verse number 11, judged. Sarah judged God to be faithful. Abraham accounted that God was faithful. He decided that God was trustworthy, that God's promises could be believed. 
Abraham decided to exercise his faith. Dale Ralph Davis put it this way, God's purpose is not to deform us into blobs of limp jello who only let go and let God, but to transform us into humble worshipers who gladly confess our help comes from God, maker of heaven and earth. Our faith is not passive. It needs to be exercised. Turn back to Joshua chapter 24. This entire chapter is about the faithfulness of God, but it's also about Joshua calling these people to make a decision. To make a choice. In verse 4, we see that God continued to bless Abraham's descendants. At the end of verse 3, it says, And multiplied his seed and gave him Isaac. And I gave unto Isaac Jacob and Esau. The multiplication of Abraham's seed was nothing short of slow by our standards. God made this promise when he was 75 years old. And when he was 100, he had a, a son. He, he, Isaac was born. And then 60 years later, Isaac, gave, Isaac had twin boys. So 85 years after God made this promise to Abraham, there were three sons, a a son and two grandsons. That's pretty slow multiplication, 85 years. But, I mean, as we saw a few weeks ago, God's not slack concerning his promise. He doesn't count slackness the way men count slackness. 400 years later, there are millions of Abraham's descendants. But 85 years later, there are three. And we have to keep that in mind. God's ways are not our ways. His ways are mysterious. We don't always understand the big picture. We also see here in verses 4 and 5, verse 4, that Esau got his inheritance right away. Jacob had to wait for his. And Jacob really never saw the fulfillment of his his promise. Jacob went down to Egypt when he was 130 years old and died at age 147 in Egypt. Abraham never got to see the fulfillment of the promise. Isaac didn't get to see the fulfillment of the promise. This, this seems backwards. Esau was given his inheritance right away, but, but yet God's people, God's promised heir through Abraham, Jacob, didn't get to see that. And that's, that's the point that's being made here. God's ways are not our ways. We've got to accept that. We've got to believe him by faith and, and trust that he absolutely honors his word and keeps his promises. And that's one thing about the Bible, that it is absolutely honest. It tells us the things that we wouldn't necessarily categorize as being so good. It tells us that we are going to suffer and that we are going to have to wait and that we are going to be persecuted. So those things shouldn't come as a surprise to us. Verse number five, God continued to use people. We, we have the mission here of Moses and Aaron to, to bring his people to the fulfillment of his promises. We just had about 400 years transpire between verses four and five. Verse number six, God continues to recount how he had delivered their enemies. And, you know, we've looked at several of these instances in Exodus 14. God, the Bible says that God deliberately boxed the children of Israel in by the sea. So they had no way of escape. 
they were put into a situation that seemed impossible to get out of intentionally, deliberately. God did that. Just to demonstrate His mighty power in parting the Red Sea. It wasn't Moses that led the people to the Red Sea. That's not what Exodus 14 says. God told Moses to take them there. To put him in that situation where the Egyptians just descended on them and it seemed like they had no other option. That was the point. God wanted that to make it. That's what God wanted them to realize, that he is their deliverer. They didn't have any other option. Verse number 7, And when they cried, some murmured against God, but others cried unto God. God heard them. And, you know, it's a, it's a good reminder for me. I, I am frequently reminded that God allows hardships into our life to drive us to Him. And, you know, if we're honest, how many of us could, could say that we would spend more time in prayer if everything went our way? If everything God did was exactly as we liked and expected, we would spend so much more time in prayer. That is certainly not in my case. I doubt it would be in yours. God drives us to a relationship with Him through all of these things that we don't necessarily understand and don't find something. The end of verse number 7, Joshua says, Your eyes have seen what I have done in Egypt. They are a witness to what God has done. They are a witness to God's deliverance. Many of these people would have been alive under the age of 20 at the time of the departing of the Red Sea. They can remember back when they were children and then remember all of the, 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 the various ways that God delivered them and demonstrated His power while they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. They have personal experience. Joshua isn't telling them anything that they shouldn't already know. In verse number 8, we have yet another example given of God's deliverance, taking from one and giving to another. We've looked at this verse several times throughout our study of the book of Joshua. This is where God gave the land on the east side of the Jordan River. Every time you see that reference there in in verse number 8 where it says on the other side Jordan, every time you see that other side Jordan, that's the east side of the Jordan. That's the side opposite, the land of Canaan. And God gave this land to the two and a half tribes. He brought them up through there and caused their enemies to be resistant specifically so He could give them that land. Another example of God's deliverance. Matthew 25:28 says, God takes from those who misuse and gives it to those who already have. God is not about equality. He is about displaying His grace and rewarding faithfulness. Daniel 4:25. The Most High ruleth in the kingdom of men and giveth it to whomsoever he will. God wants to take it from one and give it to another. That's, that's his prerogative. That's what he chooses to do frequently. In verse number 9, another instance, actually kind of a continuation of the same going up the east side of the Dead Sea, continuing from verse 8, Balak sent Balaam to curse Israel. And the argument here again is that God is our protector. Clay and I were talking about this Monday night when we were unloading firewood. You know, he's sometimes uncertain about his job, whether or not his company is going to get bought out again. I'm sometimes uncertain about my job, whether or not my company wants to transfer all the jobs to Houston. God is our protector. God is the one that provides for us. God is the one that delivers for us. As we saw Wednesday in Ecclesiastes 9, it is all in the Lord's hand. I have thanked the president of the company that I work for for giving me a job, but 
Ultimately, I know that the Lord is the one that controls whether or not I have a job. The Lord controls my employer. The Lord controls my circumstances. I know that it's in the Lord's hands. And that's, that's the point that's being, being made here in verses 9 and 10. Balaam and Balak and Balaam were just instruments in God's hand. They were powerless to go against God's will. It was God's will to prosper and deliver the Israelites. He has power over evil. Verse number 12, And I sent the hornet before you. Some debate about what that means, whether that's to be taken literally. Some interpret that to mean that Egypt had already engaged in several wars with the various peoples that resided in the land of Canaan before Israel ever got there and weakened them. Others believe it's to be taken literally, that these were literal insects that that chased these Canaanites away. I, I remember reading or seeing here on the news just a week or two ago about a golfer that encountered a swarm of hornets and had to jump into the lake. Uh, that's he was in retreat, <laughs> um, but you know some believe it's figurative um, that God, as Rahab had described to the spies, God sent panic and terror uh, to the to the Canaanites to cause them to to be able to put up very little re- resistance against the Israelites. I mean. The point is all the same. I mean, the, the point there is, is look at the end of verse 12. The point is there, the, the point is that God did, God did it. God prepared the way. It says there, but not with thy sword nor with thy bow. It's not like the Israelites didn't use those things. But the point is that that's not the reason they obtained the victory. They obtained the victory because God gave them the victory. God fought for them, as we saw several times throughout the book. Verse number 13, And I have given you a land for which ye did not labor, and cities which ye built not. Again, we see God taking from one and giving to another. God's provision is abundant. Glenn and I were having this conversation yesterday. You know, We don't know. We've never known lack. That's what we were commenting about. We've never missed a meal. We've never gone hungry. How can we complain about what the Lord has done? How can we complain about His provision? He has blessed us abundantly. Verse number 14. This is where Joshua, after he's just given them this long list of victories that God has given them, that God has obtained on their behalf, now he's calling them to action. He says, now therefore fear the Lord and serve Him in sincerity and in truth. Fear God for His power, knowing that He can take away the land anytime. As easily as God gave it, just as easily He can take it away. And, and actually we saw there in chapter 23, that's exactly what God promised to do for their unfaithfulness. If they were going to be unfaithful, they were going to experience that power of God in a negative way. He would, re, he, would re, re, he would take those things from them. Serve Him out of gratitude for all that He has done. That's the groundwork that has been laid. God has done all of these things. 
Sincerity and truth, not a superficial lip service, but a life wholly dedicated to Him, where our outward acts match our inward heart. It says they have to put away their gods. Put away the gods which your father served on the other side of the flood. We know in Genesis 31, Rachel had confiscated and hidden the images of her father and her tent. Genesis 35, Jacob had confiscated the idols of all of the people and buried them under an oak at Shechem. And so they, they have a history of struggling with idolatry. They have been brought out of that. And Joshua says, you've got a decision to make. You have a choice to make. You have got to come to grips with, you know, you're going you're to make a decision. And some people think the choice is, I'm going to serve the Lord or I'm not going to serve anything. That's not the way it's presented. It's never presented that way. Joshua says, you're going to serve the Lord or you're going to serve those other gods. You're going to be a slave to sin. Some people just think it's it's all neutral, you know. They don't, they, but that the Bible never presents that it's neutral. You make a choice when you refuse the Lord. Put away here is is very similar to terminology that we find in the New Testament that we're very familiar with. Second Corinthians five seventeen. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away, are put away. God expects us to put those things away. All things are become new. That's what Josh was calling these people to. Put that stuff aside. Renounce it. And really, there's a contrast made here in, in what isn't stated. Nowhere in chapter 4 does Joshua list the accomplishments of the other gods. We just looked at a lengthy section, a lengthy list of verses where, where Joshua just pulled out and listed many of the the great things that God had done. There's no list of the things that the other gods have done. There, there's no such list. As we saw a few weeks ago, I think, I think Pastor turned us to Psalm 135. They don't talk. They don't listen. They don't see. They don't smell. They don't anything. There's no, there's no list of accomplishments given for them. So, you know, the... the, the the choice here that Joshua leaves for the people, you know, seems like an obvious choice. It should be an obvious choice. You're going to pick God or what? What? A, what? A, nothing. Nothing there to pick. Verse 15. And if it seem evil unto you to serve the Lord, choose you this day whom you will serve. Many of us are familiar with this with this verse. You know the. the I think the implication there is after all that God has done for you, how in, how in the world can serving Him possibly seem evil? And yet many today, most probably, believe that God's demands are unreasonable. Their actions would demonstrate such that they believe that God's demands are unreasonable. Joshua hopes to elicit the same response in them that he says about himself. Here in this verse, he, he proclaims that, you know, he says, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. It, it's uh, not a stretch, I think, to, to, I think, I can't imagine that Joshua didn't mean even if we're the only ones. 
Even if everybody else forsakes the Lord and abandons the Lord, Joshua says, we're not going to. We're, we're not going to. My family isn't going to. Not, not if, that's what Joshua was saying. Not if I have anything to do about it. You know, and it begs the question, how can Joshua speak for his whole house? He's 110. <laughs> it's probably pretty safe bet that he doesn't have young children. And yet he says, my house, we will serve the Lord. How can he force them to cooperate? How can he force their compliance? And we're not told what the consequences would be to those in his family who refuse to cooperate. A lot of speculation about that. Would they be thrown out? How far do you take it? Um, some believe that the, the reason the consequences aren't mentioned is because they, they wouldn't be part of his family if they didn't cooperate. He has the authority in his home. He can choose to establish the rules and the boundaries, and if they don't want to abide by them, they can go elsewhere. And those are very, very uncomfortable decisions that uh, many of us hope we never have to make. But I don't know to what extent Joshua's enforcement of that is. I think the sentiment is that he's certainly making it clear he's going to do everything that he can to see that his family is faithful to the Lord. He has, from everything I have seen through my study of the book of Joshua, he has set a great example. He has led by example. Um, you know, exactly how those boundaries would be established, uh, exactly how those lines would be drawn in the sand, I, I don't know. We don't, we're not given the specifics. But certainly as I evaluate my leadership of my home, I, I don't want to be a hypocrite. That's probably a recipe to, for disaster right away. I don't want to be a Sunday morning only Christian. Children are not that dumb. They can spot hypocrisy right away. They know what's important to us. They know whether or not we get up on Sunday and all of a sudden transform ourselves into a different kind of person than we are Monday through Saturday. They, they, they see right through all that. And I think that that's what Joshua is saying. He certainly wasn't going to be that kind of a, of a follower of the Lord. He was going to be consistent. He was going to be consequent, constant and consistent. And, you know, he was willing to make sacrifices, you know, and what types of sacrifices are we willing to make in order to demonstrate our, to our children our, our faithfulness to the Lord? Turn back to Deuteronomy chapter 30. Deuteronomy chapter 30, Moses presents them with the same choice. Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 15. Moses speaking for the Lord, See, I have set before thee that this day life and good and death and evil. 
Verse 19, I call heaven and earth to record this day against you that I have set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. Therefore, choose life that both thou and thy seed may live. Moses says you have a decision to make. You have a choice to make. Turn to Hebrews chapter 11 again. The writer of Hebrews emphasizes the choices that Moses made. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 24 Hebrews chapter 11, verse 24 says, By faith Moses, when he was come to years, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt, for he had, reckon, he had respect unto the recompense of the reward. Esteeming, deciding, choosing. Moses decided that those riches were far greater than anything Egypt had to offer. Turn to Colossians chapter 3. We're about out of time, but turn to Colossians chapter 3. I just picked this chapter out. I mean, we could go to numerous passages where, call, where, where the Apostle Paul calls people to action. Our faith is not a, a passive faith. Paul pleads with the people over and over to make choices. Just look at some of the verbs. Verse number 1, If ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above. Verse 2, Set your affection on things above. Verse 5, Mortify therefore your members which are upon the earth. Verse 8, Put off all these. And then the list. Verse 9, Lie not one to another. Verse 12, put on, and then a list. Verse 16, let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. See, see all of these things that Paul is saying, he's, he's saying you have a choice to make. You can decide to sit on the sidelines and not exercise your faith, or you can put your faith into practice and choose to be faithful to the Lord. When my wife and I were first married, we had a pastor give us some great advice. He said, people make way too many decisions. They get up on Sunday morning and they decide whether they're going to go to church. And they decide whether they're going to put something in the offering plate. He said, a lot of decisions should be really one-time decisions. You just decide, we're going to church. And I'm sure that most everyone in here, that I... I I would imagine there were very few people in here today that woke up today and thought, hmm, I, I don't know if I'm going to church today. I, I, I haven't decided yet. Now, for most of you, you didn't give it a second thought because you made that decision a long time ago. And most of you didn't decide whether you were going to give to the Lord. You made that decision a long time ago. It's not a decision that you have to make over and over every day, every week. In Joshua Turn back to Joshua 24 there in verses 14 and 15. The word serve appears seven times in these these two verses. What does it mean to serve the Lord? To serve God? I remember, I don't know if it was last year or the year before, Pastor preached a Labor Day message on 1 Corinthians 15.58. Be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. 
He told us that serving God for a New Testament Christian means building the church or building up the church, planning and teaching. Preaching, teaching, evangelizing. Being engaged in God's service. That's just like church attendance or giving. It's a decision that we decide, that we make, whether or not we're going to serve the Lord or not. Joshua reasons with them. Paul reasons with people. In Romans 12, 1 and 2, that's what Paul says. It's your reasonable service to serve the Lord. It's reasonable. We can't force people to, to serve, nor should we. Joshua, here in verse 15, again getting back to the, the statement about us, for me and my house we will serve the Lord. Um, he did not shirk his responsibilities as a father and a husband. I mean, that, that's clearly a statement there that he was going to do what he could. He was going to do what was necessary to see that his family remained faithful to the Lord. In 1 Timothy 3, 4, and 5, the Bible tells us that's the requirement of a pastor. He must rule his own house well. He must have his children in subjection. Certainly, those things fall within the category of as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And, you know, all of us that are fathers and husbands, that should be true of us. That's not just true of those that are pastors. We should endeavor what we do to set the example to do whatever we can to encourage our children to be faithful to the Lord. All right, we're out of time. Anybody have anything they want to contribute before we're... Before we're done.